Uh, we are just about to start our last panel of the day uh, for forum, and um, it's uh, it's titled "To Exhibit Means to Show: The Making the Making of an Artist's Book." Um, and the two panelists are Stanley Wolukau Wanambwa, a photographer, and Derek Forjo, an artist. And they will talk about their publications. Uh, the presentation will also investigate notions of display and the role of publishing artist books. Um, I will introduce the moderator, uh, G. Wesley. Um, G. Wesley is an arts organizer born in Monrovia, Liberia, and based in Brooklyn. Currently, he's the program director at Recess, the In Practice 2019 Curatorial Fellow at the Sculpture at the Sculpture Center and adjunct faculty in the Curatorial Practice MFA program at the Maryland Institute of Institute College of Art. He's a founder and co-director of Ulysses, a Philadelphia-based bookshop and curatorial platform dedicated to artists, books, and independent art publications. Um, he's also a co-founder of Bruce Martin Gallery, a one-room apartment project space in Richmond, Virginia, uh, that ran that ran between 2016 and 2017. Uh, from 2015 to 2017, Wesley was the Spiegel Wilkes Curatorial Fellow at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in Philadelphia. While at ICA, Wesley helped to steward the institutional initiative I is for Institute with curator Alex Klein and organized numerous public events and performances. Um, so I will turn over to G and he will start the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, can, can everyone hear me okay? Okay, sounds like. Um, and thank you all. Um, Tinashe, Nancy, the, the incredible team at 154 and Forum, um, it's an incredible pleasure to be here and to be in conversation around this topic, publications, display, exhibitions, um, and it's a, a unique pleasure to be in discussion with the two of you. Um, because of the nature of your work, the distinctions between your work and how they kind of indicate um, diverging um, and parallel ways of thinking through publications, exhibition spaces. Um, the way we're going to structure this is going to be very open. Um, uh, um, and uh, But I, I kind of uh, w was hoping we would leave the space there then for... Um, for the conversation to, in a way, define your practice and the space and uh, uh, that your practice is kind of occupying. Um, so, but I, I really wanted to open up with um, where our recent conversation began, which was thinking through um, the nature of the publication and how that structured, how both of you approached turning your works um, into publications, into books that would circulate. Um, Tanashi mentioned my work with Ulysses, which is an independent um, art space based in uh, Philadelphia that focuses on the publication. Um, and our work with Ulysses was kind of um, in mind to this idea that uh, institutional practice, institutional curatorial practice is kind of exercised along three notes. So one being uh, exhibition making, um, organizing shows, artworks in space, 
um, another being public programming, um, and another being publications. Um, and we're sort of all familiar with the hierarchies that exist between um, those formats, you know, in which the publication, uh, excuse me, in which the exhibition is central and primary, and the publication and uh, public programming kind of come out of those as secondary byproducts. You have like the, the exhibition, and then you have maybe a curator's walkthrough or a performance within the space of the exhibition or an artist talk. Um, and then you have on the side of publications, you have the catalog. Um, so there's this kind of really clear idea of like um, primary source, central thing, and then the aspect of translation. Um, and with our work of Ulysses and a lot of the ways that I've been interested in kind of thinking through publications, um, then I'm glad to um, sort of have framed this conversation are the ways in which uh, so many artists are thinking about what it means to sort of pivot that relationship. So to make the performative aspects of material culture central or to make the, uh, the, the kind of publication more central um, and what are the kind of outcomes and consequences of that. Um, so I, I kind of just wanted to, the, to maybe open up there as a way to think about um, individually from both of you how um, you took upon this task or um, up, how the nature of your specific works and way of working informed um, how you gone, went through that process of either translation or refused that process of translation. Um, but um, yeah, just maybe. <laughs> okay, so it looks like I'm up. Um, well, thanks everybody for coming and thank you again, Tinashi and Nancy in particular, but also Olivia and everyone else at 154 for their support in, in terms of the event today. It's great to be here. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm really happy to be in conversation with the two of you. So um, yeah, how do I approach it? I, so I should say up front, you know, um, I came to photography by way of the book uh, before really actually even thinking about going to an exhibition. Um, the first point I really realized that I was interested in photography with a capital P as a distinct expressive form um, was when Noam Chomsky came to where I was an undergrad student and talked about his work on a book called Vietnam Incorporated that he did with, he contributed an essay oh, to wow. by Philip Jones Griffith, this really famous magnum photojournalist. And, I went and bought the book after the Chomsky lecture, and I'd never seen, I'd, I had a number of books by that point, I'd been into books for years, but I'd never seen a book like it. Right. And I'd never seen anybody use photographs in that expressive and discursive way before. And my entry into the sort of field of photographic practice for years really was driven principally collecting them by using my student loan money to buy book after book after book. Mm -hmm. That I started going to the photographer's gallery and other places to, to see it on the wall. And there's a really rich tradition in photography dating all the way back, um, as the New York Public Library just demonstrated to Anna Atkins in the 19th century, of considering the book as a sort of primary exhibitional and discursive space for photographic work. And, you know, so I'm sitting here and my images are sort of scrolling up on the screen there. And, you know, if somebody has this book, then the reproduction of a photograph in it, for me, constitutes the picture, you know? Um, and so, What's attractive to me and important to me about a book is that you really are able to give someone as close as you can reasonably and pragmatically hope to do so the, the artwork itself when they buy that book. There's really as, as little sort of mitigation of your, of your conceptual and aesthetic and, um, and sort of discursive priorities as possible. This is really the thing that I wanted to put out into the world. And if I'd never do anything else in terms of my own creative practice, this object will stand as a representation of what I think about the work I've been making and how I understand its relationships to the world. Mm -hmm. So it, 
I understand there's that inversion in, in terms of institutional practice whereby the exhibition is primary and there are these sort of derivations that, that peel off of that. But from, from the point of view of me individually, and I think to some extent from the point of view of the field of art photography, the book really is a site of encounter and uh, a sort of uh, a place or an object around which to congregate. And what was attractive for me in working with Roka Willems, the publisher and designer of my book, um, is that he's very interested in finding a, an expressive model that's specific to the, the quality and, and sort of substance of the practice of his artists. And so once he'd agreed to work with me on, on producing a book, his questions really forced me to kind of rethink how I understood what a process of translation from practice to page could look like and might look like and how the book as a physical, dimensional, durational object might articulate and, and give sort of give, give flesh to those ideas um, and to be experiential in its own terms. So, so then, you know, I think Tinashi was talking earlier about sort of the question of artist book practice. I, I think almost without realizing it in the collaboration with Rocha, we, we, were, we were looking for a way not to produce something that conformed to a set of kind of normative conventions about fine art f photographic bookmaking, but that would, that would be grounded in the particular qualities and themes and concerns of the work I'd been making. And he has such extraordinary vocabulary as a bookmaker. He's produced, I think at this point, something like 330 books over the last 20 years. Um, that, that a lot of very sophisticated and important decisions were, were, were sort of internal to his way of thinking. Um, and we were able fairly quickly to figure out a general space within which to work and a general sort of structure within which to work. And then strangely, as the structure resolved itself, the differing pieces that would need to go into the book became really easy to work out. So that it wasn't a process which for some, I know for some photographers is often the case where things are in and out and back in and again and you're struggling to work out, do I cut this, do I keep that? It really, it, 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 it slotted together in a way that felt, felt quite true. Yeah. I, I mean, what your um, reflection about how for you and in your practice, the book is not secondary and not central, but um, the encounter that one has, you know, with your work in this book is the experience. It's, it is the experience. Um, it's so interesting. Um, and I'm curious uh, how that's balanced with your work, Derek, in which like this, um, your, your, your paintings, your practice, your sculptural works, there's so much materiality and texture and um, uh, there's so much that happens in that kind of presence of those works that, um, that literally, aesthetically becomes flattened in this, in this process and how that shifted um, the creative decisions that you came to about how um, to structure the publication um, given that uh, reality that you yeah that it wouldn't be the thing of itself like yeah, yeah. well it's a great question um, and I, I guess I do feel some envy of Stanley because for actually both of you talking about um, I guess the the art book as derivative from an exhibition I thought about my experience working with black chalk with Nancy Kalele Mutiti, who I think is a genius, and I'm not saying that just because I'm here. Um, I'm here because she is a genius, but in working with her, I kind of turned it over. And I, I was a little um, 
I may be skeptical about how it could translate, but in a sense, she played the role of a curator. Mm -hmm. That I said, look, I have all this material. Um, this is kind of what the, the goals of it are. But making choices like the cover of the book, the size, the weight, the weight of the page, the flow, the rhythm of the content, where interviews are placed, where they're not, those were really decisions I turned over to someone who I thought was really kind of a, an expert in books. I, I love books, I own lots of them, but I've, I haven't made many. So I did entrust her maybe in the way that I would a curator to make certain primary decisions and then I was secondary to that process. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that her decision making really presented my work in the space of a book, mm -hmm. right? Which is not the space of exhibition, right. you know, uh, with a capital E. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that the, 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 the final result reflects that, mm -hmm. you know, it's the experience of looking at a book and not trying to mimic the experience of walking around an exhibition or we're gonna take all these angles to show you all the texture. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that, right. because the book can't do that. Right. But what it can do, she did. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was great. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it really brings to mind too, like the, the, the framing of this conversation, which is about like to exhibit is to show, and the ways in which uh, uh, the creating a book is this mode of making art public, like I, these kind of three genres of curatorial practice that I kind of alluded to at the top of this talk are really all uh, modes of making pu public, making a, something public, which is different than maybe, uh, uh, you know, it's like the distinction between a publication and a post. Um, making public doesn't simply enact, um, it doesn't simply uh, uh, release something and make it visible, but it creates a public around, or creates the potential for creating a public around the content that is ma being made public. Um, and I think that's something that I'm, um, I'm, I find interesting in the, the, the approaches to uh, making a book that are possible of like the idea, the slippages between public and publications um, that are possible. Um, but then, you know, we, we both spoke too about like the, this idea of the show talks too about like the generosity of sharing. Um, but then there's also this aspect too of like the exhibition that, that, uh, that is about like, uh, you know, to remove, to extract something out of its localized context. And, you know, is there a violence in that? Is there a kind of like, um, in that dislocation, in that removal, um, that maybe is interesting, you know, with your way of working? I'm, I'm curious, um, yeah, if, if, if there are reflections on like, the duality of exhibit, exhibiting and, and whether or not that gets carried to into the space of the book um, when the book becomes the exhibition. Yeah, I mean, I, so I, I teach photography um, and something that comes up in almost every semester and at least I no longer have to plan for it because it comes up of its own free will, you know, in most classes is the question of exploitation in relationship to photography. So a lot of the young students who want to be in the world mm -hmm struggle with this question of, you know, what does it mean for me to strip things out of their context and to exploit them, certainly when it involves photographing people who are, who themselves won't benefit from that print. So the question comes up a lot and I often, you know, I mean, it, it enables me to make a few obvious but I think important points. The first of which is that to take, an, to make an image, to strip the reflection from an object and to transform it into a negative, digital or otherwise, and then to produce a print from that, 
is to decontextualize and to exploit the specificity of a, of a given moment out of its continuity and to transpose it into another. So there's no way you can get around exploitation mm -hmm. if you're interested in making photographic images. Right. I, I would argue if you're interested in telling any kind of a story, then you're, you're doing the same thing, right? You decontextualize and you place a particular set of emphases on one particular group of events within the vast continuum of the world and you say, this is the thing that happened, this matters, this is what I would want for you to pay attention to. So it's, it, it's inescapable, I think, in, in, the, in the nature of this form of like, expression that exploitation occurs. The question for me is not, is it happening? It's to what end, right? right? Um, if I, and, and the way that I try to sort of make that clear when we're in classes, I'll say, well, tell me the story of how you got to school this morning. And you know, people will then rifle back through their memories and think about what happened on the way to school. And they'll choose particular events, particular experiences. They'll link them in a particular way. They'll emphasize. And I'll say, well, imagine somebody else was walking five paces behind you the whole way that you came to school. Would they tell the same story? The answer is, of course, they wouldn't, right? So I think it's, 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 it's a stumbling block that, that I think is, a, is, is an artificial or at least um, an unproductive impediment to thinking much more about what, is a for, what kind of opportunity am I afforded as a creative person by the capacity to decontextualize and recontextualize experiences in the world. What happens when I recombine elements of this flux and give them particular scale and texture and weight and visual and thematic emphasis? What, what becomes possible in the interstice that I can create with these kinds of objects? And, and that's where, for me, the book is, is, is extraordinarily vital and, and, and powerful. And you were talking about um, this question of making public. And I suppose I've often thought about the book with a different term that's not, 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 not sort of unlinked from that, and it's also problematic, which is democratic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I make fine art photographic prints of the pictures that are cycling on the screen, and I would hope to sell them, and they will mm -hmm. be expensive to anybody who isn't capable of dropping thousands of dollars on a given day. Mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not accessible, right? Mm -hmm. Those objects aren't accessible, and there's an artificial scarcity mm -hmm. to the production of those objects. You create additions so that there's a limit to how many can be sold, mm -hmm. and so on and so on. To the extent that people are able to spend $40 on, on a book, what's in this book will be the same from this copy to that copy to every other copy that we produced. Mm -hmm. And if that edition sells out, we'll produce another edition at the same price and try to make those things available again. Mm -hmm. It's not infinitely available, and of course, as I say, it's sold at a price. Mm -hmm. But what I like about the book is that it, it makes the same set of ideas and objects available to whomever might physically be in its presence, which also includes, of course, being in a library, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's a certain kind of making public where you, you're aware subconsciously when you open a book that the content hasn't changed for you versus the last person who picked it up, right. right? And what you make of it might vary radically from what the person who picked it up before made of it, mm -hmm. but it's, while it's in your hands, it's yours. Mm -hmm. And your experience and your, your encounter with it is specific and, and specific to that moment, or sort of specific to you and your history mm -hmm. as much as to the work that the person who's, who's mm -hmm. produced the book might also have, have, have sort of brought to that process. Mm -hmm. And, and what I, I really love about the book, and one reason that we thought very carefully about scale, mm -hmm. is that we, you know, we, we chose to make a book where if you, if you want to immerse yourself in it, it's, it's something that you have to do more or less on your own. It's a very difficult book to share between mm -hmm. two people. Um, but it's a book where if you open it and you're, you're looking at it on your own, still has a certain kind of weight and scale to it. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, any image on, on, on the page is, 
not so far distance that you that, that you can't read it in its entirety, but right. isn't so overwhelming that you feel as though you're being sort of enveloped by the object. Right. And that I think um, was an important note in terms of in terms of the kind of content that, that's in the book. Because for me, um, one of the principal questions in relationship to all this work I've made is how do we individually understand our position in relationship to the ongoing reproduction of white supremacy and white heteronormativity? Like, how do we each individually understand that reality? How are we positioned within and against it? Um, what agency do we feel that we have in relation to that reality? How does it bond us in relationship to the various factors that reproduce these realities? And, and so it, it was important to me that the book that we made not be sort of spectacular and grandiose and also that that it, that it requests and, and sort of reward a certain kind of attentive reading. And it was important that the, the object didn't set itself up in such a way as to sort of claim an enormous amount of physical space, but that if you delved into the contents of the object, it became clear that the issues it's addressing are themselves really quite sizable, right? And so it feels a little bit brick-like. Um, you know, we chose this buckram material for the cover, which at a sort of subconscious level will remind people of library books, um, so that if you pick it up, you're sort of, oh right, no, I'm... So there's a certain kind of pedagogical emphasis in it, um, which I thought was important because I do... I think I, myself, and everybody who's invested in understanding how to think through and speak about the kinds of broad questions that come up in, a, in relationship to white supremacy understand that we need to be in a process of learning. So it was also important that the book had a kind of feel that to some extent resonated with that. And, and in all those kinds of ways, I, I, I felt that the book was a way to sort of manifest, maybe as, a, as opposed to using the verb show, um, a set of ideas um, contextually that really were, were tightly bound up with the project, the project itself. Yeah. Um, and that the violences that it contains, both in terms of the kinds of images that it shows or even some of the words that crop up in it, are, are necessary to the contextual exploration of the questions it's taking on. And that if you spend 10 seconds flicking either side of a picture that strikes you as being, as being problematic, you'll see where and how and in what ways that, that decision has been made. And you may agree or may not agree, but it, it, it won't seem as if it was arbitrary. Yeah, so there's, a, there's scope for a certain kind of precision, I think, in a book that for me was, was also really attractive. And, and as you were saying before, Derek, of course, when you enter an exhibition space, you have to surrender the capacity to kind of organize how people will experience objects, and in that way, you have to think about it three-dimensionally. Um, and with the book, to some extent, you know that there are linear relationships which help to resolve questions that the, the material brings up. You know, on on that topic of physicality, which I think is really a great point, Stanley. Around uh, you said this pedagogical aspect of the design, which I think is great. Um, in working with Nancy Kalele uh, Matiti, she. Um, often talked about the passability of the book, which I kind of like from an egotistical standpoint wanted a big book because I was kind of used to art books and I was like, let's make a big book. And she was like, but do you want to make something so heavy that people can't walk around with it? And I had never thought of that. Um, and so she said that we should make the kind of book that is easy to pass from one person to another to walk around a fair with. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about the intimate nature of books, that there is an intimacy. And I was thinking about how I came to look at great works of art, and it was really through books. It really wasn't through the space of museums. Um, it really was, and that's a private space 
that's a body relationship. I might be laying down. Who knows what I'm wearing? You know, all that allows for an intimate experience with the material. So the physicality of the book, the body relationship to the book, those kinds of things are opportunities that exhibition spaces don't afford because an exhibition space is public and very often reading is private. And I think that that's an opportunity that, that really in your speaking I, I reflected on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, that, this kind of thing, so many books, we think of them as encounter. But yeah, it's a totally uh, an embodied experience. Reading is an embodied experience. Holding a text, uh, a book is an embodied experience. And I mean, uh, um, this Philadelphia Project, Ulysses, is all about uh, the kind of reason that it's called Ulysses is named after Ulysses Carrion, who was a Mexican artist who lived in Amsterdam most of his life and ran a shop called Other Books and So, um, who has a phenomenal text um, called The New Art of Making Books and sort of says, like, uh, you know, there's a distinction between the book and the text. Those are not the same thing um, that, like, a, uh, a book that has an incredible text but is, like, the same from... Um, there's just no variation, no subtleties, um, no playfulness or experimentation. It's how it's put together or thought of as an object. It's a very boring book. Like it could be um, James Joyce's Ulysses, but it's a very boring book. It's a phenomenal text, but it's a boring book. And I, and I think that idea is, is, um, is something that uh, independent art publications, artist books, artists who enter into the space of publishing kind of make, uh, kind of illustrate. And I was also really interested in um, this question about the the yeah the possibilities of the book and because uh, uh, on the one hand um, the artist book the independent art publication is such a new and vital form relative to other artistic media right you think of uh, you know uh, uh, painting or uh, portraiture um, these have this uh, in uh, associations of this kind of like European cultural hegemony that we're sp always trying to think outside of and 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 move um, away from. Uh, and the artist book offers this alternative space to that, but but then of course, like the book in culture generally uh, is something that is uh, has uh, associations of sort of the didactic bureaucracies of of kind of mass education or you know pr uh, religious proselytization, um, you know the uh, colonial sort of indoctrination. There are all of these uh, associations on in a societal level that the book carries. Um, and I was cu curious. I don't know. Um, if there are ways that you see um, your either of, of your approaches to publishing um, in this example, or as people who have been you know passionate and inspired by publications, is sort of weaving through that uh, those kind of pulls. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I was I wanted to ask Stanley, both of you, whether there, there's a distinction with the art book and then the artist book, right? The art book, I think of as kind of a publisher taking an inventory of work and producing a product. The artist book is about an artist's intention, mm. right? I think so. Am I wrong? I, I mean, there are, I think there are probably a number of definitions of it. I tend to think of them um, in terms of the, the scale and, and, and nature of reproducibility as being a dividing line in many ways. Okay. Um, I mean, in the photography space, a lot of the people who publish books are themselves photographers. And so you could make a certain kind of claim about the autobiography and the fact that the, the book being published is the work of the publisher themselves. But I tend to think artist books are intended not to be reproducible at scale. Right. Um, yeah. That they're, they're sort of um, intentionally handmade in some fashion. Right. Um, they're unwieldy, right? They're, Smaller editions. They're difficult to translate. Right. 
um, and that they don't conform to any sort of infrastructural norm about what sort of content goes where and right. for what reason. And in that sense, that they can be a kind of animation of a process that's in flux. Sure. Um, where a trade edition of a book, an art book, um, is intended to be a resolved sort of object. Um, that's a and fantastic is, answer, by the way. Right. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It, let, let's say that it is. I wish I saved it. That was good. Because it's I think true. We're recording. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'll forget but, it in a minute. But. But I do think um, we tried, you know, I think we tried with this book to do something that, that borrowed from some aspects of both of those expressive forms. And I mean, there's an essay at the very back of my book, which, you know, I mean, it's, almost, it's 248 pages long. There's 119 photographs in it. Um, there's these two large text collages. And then at the end, there's almost a 7,000 word essay. And so it's a big, it's a big, it's a substantial amount of material. And so, you know, I, I was aware, we were aware that it's very unlikely someone's going to open it on page one and go all the way through, and it wasn't intended to be structured in that way. But if you at some point come to the essay, presumably having seen the pictures, or even if you haven't, there's a certain level of irresolution in the conclusion to the essay um, that, put, that, that's, that puts a kind of question to everything that you've seen in the pages leading up to it. And, and in that sense, I think the book was... The book was, to get back to what you were saying about the sort of hegemonic and didactic histories that we have in relation, I didn't want the book to suggest that I had reached some kind of artificially stable resolution in relation to these questions. I think um, there are a number of reasons for that. There are sort of willful artistic reasons having to do with not being suspicious of completion or totality, but there are also deeply political reasons having to do with being a black man in this moment. I'm not interested in making people feel good about the set of problems that I'm describing. And I don't feel that I have to produce the answers. I don't feel I'm responsible for giving people hope. Um, and, and there's a way in which a book can be an object that lends the impression that it's going to do that. That it's going to deliver at its conclusion some kind of redemptive and restorative uh, statement or claim. And, and, and that's not, I'm not interested in that. Um, I think what what gives me hope is people's willingness to do the work, right? It's not so much about someone standing up and suggesting that they have the solution. And, and so I think we tried not to conform to some of the kind of didactic histories of what the book has meant. And then I also think that I was trying in the process of making the photographs to, to, to think about and to, to make available in a certain way um, a reckoning with how our, our language, our photographic language, our language our sort of verbally and otherwise is suffused with a set of violences that have been so normalized that they go unattended to, you know? Um, I don't know if it's possible to freeze on that slide, for instance, just because it happened to pop up, the one that came before. Um, sorry, I should have given you a bit of notice. But two slides, so that, yeah, that one. So that, I mean, the, that's a photograph that I made in upstate New York um, on a really beautiful summer's day um, in, a, in, a, in a, one of those classic sort of post-industrial upstate New York towns um, of a business that's collapsed whose name was Niagara Mohawk. And I, I knew intuitively that I didn't want to photograph the complete straight shape of the, of the name of the company. I couldn't have told you why in the moment that I knew that I was going to push in too close to show you both words clearly but that the cut was, a, was, was in some way significant to the description of what was actually, what I felt the real, what was being bodied forth on the wall. Um, 
So, so I, I think incompletion can be something that photography can deliver in ways that are generative rather than frustrating. Um, and I think that books can help to construct an environment within which certain kinds of questions recur and shift and, and intersect with others in ways that also are generative. And so I, I hope that the object that we produce together manages to do that sort of work you know, in relation to those themes. I love what you say too about the the specificity of this of of your relationship to producing books and and as a as a black man uh, because I often think about like this kind of like the the archival capacity of publications and of books and of texts as well and in other forms of inscription um, and uh, and think as well about um, the you know what constitutes these forms of black archives or, you know, and, and how to understand uh, a shift in approach to black archives that think less about um, black archives as simply archives of black life, but uh, a black archival logic. And I like what you said about this, uh, that photograph and the way that it's sort of a black archival logic thinks towards um, forms of faced from uh, archives, hegemon, like a black archival logic as, as the, the object also as something that's scriptive too, right? Like something that is fits within an embodied relationship, sort of what you were talking about, of like, uh, you know, like the decision to create a book uh, that one can carry throughout a fair like this or put on one's backpack in the train and open up and read um, as opposed to something that sort of sits on a shelf among like a series of volumes that you sort of pull out to, you know, um, so I, I, not so much a question, but just sort of like um, an interest of mine that I think both of your work and the examples of these publications point to is like the archival capacity of publications and, but also like the aspect of the archive that relates to uh, futurity and, um, yeah, I don't know if either of you want to talk about your relationship there. Well, that's a great place to take us to. I want to point back to the black archival logic in your design. I thought that was really interesting about the kind of opacity in the design as a kind of resistance uh, that you want to, uh, I guess, avoid a kind of legibility that makes your content easy or accessible. And I think about how colorful my book is and how easy the colors are. And it really is a kind of strategy to maybe seduce people in. But I didn't think about the political aspect of the design logic and what navigating the material is like, how easy we make that or not, or thinking about that kind of opacity as a refusal. I think that was really brilliant. Um, but on the issue of the archival, I mean, it's one of the aspects I really think a lot about. I mean, um, more people will probably see the publication than the exhibition. Um, and in, in many cases may not see original art, but see books. Um, there's so many artists that I've seen more reproductions of their work than I've actually stood in front of work. So it's, art, it, it's possible that the book has, uh, I guess, a, a wider audience than the work. Um, so from that point of view, I, I think about the way we contextualize the, the content as kind of 
a, a responsibility. How do we want this work to be remembered? What is the legacy of this work? What context do we want to stay with the work around kind of literature we, we pair it with and that kind of thing? And it's something that I think all of us that are sort of black producers, artists, content producers, we are part of a, an archive. There's a kind of de facto association to blackness that happens. Um, and I wonder how, how intentional we, we have to be or need to be. Um, I like the freedom of saying just by producing this, it is part of some kind of literary diaspora of some kind. Um, I don't know how Stanley thinks of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, yeah, I was, I, I resonated a lot. Or I'm, I'm very deeply invested in some of the ways in which you were describing um, uh, black relationships to to institutional archives and 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 um, to practices of preservation. Um, and. And I do think, I hope that the book index is not just my thought process or the sort of pictures that I made, but something of a historical conjuncture. Um, and to the extent that the object survives and is connected to other discourses and other, other communities that it, that it's a historical question, right? And to ask a question in understanding the historical construction of the present about what possible futures we might imagine um, to get to that note about futurity. And, um, you know, I, I, I definitely think one of the things that eventually really excited me, I think when I began working with Roker, I, I was much more interested in making a beautiful object that contained about 40 pictures that were really beautiful and that might make people want to own it. And it, I really had to learn um, to respect the practice and to sort of disinhibit myself of, or disin, disinvest myself of all these ideas about what, a, what an art book was supposed to be to begin to reckon with what its particular possibilities might, might be. And one of them, I think, is that we produced a book that's too much to ask any one person to consume in one sitting, you know? And that's not, that wasn't about um, machismo, it wasn't about trying to overwhelm someone with, with information, it was about reckon, recognizing that what this work describes is larger than one comfortable serving. Um, and that to the extent that the work has, has substance and complexity, this is something you'll need to think about more than once. It's something I've been thinking about at least like consciously and acutely for seven years, which is this, the time span of the work in the book. Um, and so in that sense, um, I think I, 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 also, I also hope that the pictures might change over time, not physically, but in terms of people's relation to them and that people's sense of the intersecting voices, whether from the text collages or the poems or from the, 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 the essay that I wrote, might also shift over time. There are people I've met who haven't looked at the indices in the back of the book. There's an index for the pictures and an index for the texts. And who then, I, you know, when discovering it, go back and look at the pictures and suddenly start to rethink some of the pictures that they'd seen. Um, so I do want it to be a kind of... Uh, uh, I want I want the book to be capable of of, of um, kind of making differing claims on the present over time, and and at the same time of indexing a certain set of relationships to the present that it described in its moment, um, which is a moment that, as I say, spans 2012 to 2019 nearly. Um, but then I think, um, yeah, I also I I think you made a, a really important point about archival practice in campus, and so I've got this sort of school-related reading to do for a while. But the book I'm going to be reading once I'm done with the semester is Sadia Hartman's new book, Wayward Lies, Beautiful Experiments. 
um, which, which I've understood in its sort of the, the pieces that have come up to now in its presentation is really developing um, a practice, an archival practice that was earlier described in Venus in Two Acts, which is maybe my favorite essay. Um, and yeah, and so the word that, <laughs> so there's a lot of us walking around, yeah. Um, and the word that comes to mind for me in relation to that question of specifically the kind of the, the black archival practices is fabulation. Um, you know, it's, it's unavoidably the case for a variety of different regions regionally across the globe, or even just if we think of the United States, that uh, the substantial majority of black experience is not recorded any kind of, in, in any kind of institutional archive. And when you think of Venus in two acts, and you think of which facets of African-American experience entered the, the official record in the historical conjuncture of slavery, of course, like, that's not an accurate representation of the experience of the people who themselves were living it, right? And there are all kinds of reasons having to do with power and violence um, for that, right? So what does it mean on the one hand to need a, a sense of one's historical genesis, on the other hand to recognize that, that the implements available to us to sort of describe that history are profoundly um, not just uh, insufficient for the task, but, but were produced according to a logic that is expressly anti-black, right? It's a very complicated thing to then want to hold on to those kinds of materials. And, and of course, there are all these gaps and interstices that one wants to imagine in which other people would have been living and speaking, but those things wouldn't have been recorded. And some of that arrives in the way of oral history, some of it arrives in the forms of things like Negro spiritual, some of it arrives in other kinds of social practices, but a, a huge amount of it just isn't in the record or, or recorded in any kind of an accessible way. But that doesn't mean that we don't know that it existed. And what I find especially powerful about about Sadia Hartman's work is, is, is her insistence on, on not respecting any kind of disciplinary division between history and fiction um, in the effort of producing counter histories about African American experience. And I think that in a way that central section in my book where there's a series of appropriated archival negatives that I've been buying over a number of years is, is it represents an effort to do a number of things, and I wouldn't want to claim that it's sort of identical with that, with Hartman's project, but one of the things that I think I was definitely doing was, which are, for the most part, press photographs, and to look at them from the position of the other, to think about how other people in the room in those moments might have seen those pictures as distinct from the normative expectations of what they would describe and for whom. Yeah. And there's a picture in, um, there's a picture in, the, in my book of, um, a white woman who's lying on a hospital bed and she's, she's being operated on and her neck is open and there's you know, surgeons sort of working away and there's two black nurses who are helping to restrain her and she's centrally framed in the photograph and she's looking directly at the camera and there's this expression of acute distress and pain on her face. And, um, and I've used that photograph in a, in a few different venues and of course the first process of identification that one has with it, or people typically has, is they, they feel sympathy for, for the victim of the pain, and they, as a consequence, also have a certain feeling about the people who are creating that pain, even though it's in the, in the, in the interest of care, uh, quite literally. But the caption for that photograph is, armed woman shot by police, right? So the woman who's being operated on was out wielding a gun in the street in front of the police, and she was shot by them, but survived, and the black medical staff who were caring for her presumably were aware that this is somebody who's a gunshot victim of the police and who subsequently was actually out in the street with a gun. And that for me is a profoundly important 
note, right? That in, that in some ways shifts the basis of what it, is, what it means to, to ask a question of identification with that historical record, right? And so in the book, the caption is separated from the photograph, so you might read it one way going through sequentially, and then you might read it another way when you reach that caption. But I'm really interested in, 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 in this book as indexing or creating a kind of record within which we can think about differing positions from which to look at the same picture, right? And that kind of practice, I think, is essential to, to African-American survival and has been since, you know, since slavery. A capacity to see the world in at least two, if not more, ways and to understand the, the efficiency in both is essential to one's survival, right? It might just be that in a sort of larger sense, it's essential to survival writ large. Yeah. That, that was incredibly beautiful. And uh, Harbin, of course, submits this idea of writing in the grammatical mood of the subjunctive mm -hmm. as, as this idea of like not just what is or was, but what could have been. Yeah. And, and that gesture that you describe exercising your book is totally about that, right? Like sort of activating the subjunctive kind of registers of the image. Um, simply by the removal or relocation of a caption. Um, and I, uh, I think there's time for us to also bring in uh, conversation and, and comments and questions from uh, the audience. Um, and we have someone who has a microphone that can uh, pass, pass that around. I, um, hello. Oh shit, my voice, okay. Um, <laughs> You're on. I guess uh, a lot of this conversation, from what I heard, is about um, sort of the reproduction of existing artworks. And I was just wondering, like, uh, if you got, if there was space in you guys' practice to make uh, books as artworks, or to make books specifically for artworks that would not exist in these other realms. I think you spoke very well about that, about how photographers, it's an artist book. Um, about the space of books as preservation or a documentary archival function. Um, my particular practice doesn't lend itself at this moment um, to that, but I am faced with the question of, as you were talking about, accessibility. That that's something I'm committed to as a person, like the accessibility of the ideas in my work, outside of the selling of my work, which is a very narrow space. And so I do think about the possibility of publications to create more one kind of accessibility for people who may not go to a show or be able to afford to buy it, which is a lot of people. Um, and so it's something I think about. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, there's, a, there's a publishing model that I, I've learned about and only experienced by way of the humanities that, come, that happens around symposia, where a group of people are invited usually as much as two or sometimes three years in advance to, to prepare a set of papers around a theme that they'll deliver at a symposium. And then everybody turns up and the papers are delivered and people respond either in Q&A like this or also oftentimes people are asked to prepare a response that then will be delivered afterwards or very soon after the paper is delivered. A set of conversations happen over a period of three, maybe four days and then everything is aggregated and at some point in the future a book is produced and it more or less records, you know, or transcribes those conversations, um, then acts as a kind of record of that moment in time. 
And I'm really interested in what that kind of model might look like from an artistic practice point of, point of view, which is to say if you, you get substitute um, essay for, for image or object, what would it be like if, you know, together with the group of people that I wanted to be working with, we all got together and decided to do something, and whatever issued from that process would then at some point turn into a book. Um, and I, I, I think at some point in the not too distant future I'm gonna try that. Um, but I would qualify, I guess, or maybe it's not even qualifying, where I would vary from what you were saying in terms of making books that themselves are objects is that it's too deep in my DNA that books should be available to as many people as possible to be able to think of them as something that limited in terms of uh, quantity and that expensive in terms of price. And that's not to suggest that um, I don't, you know, like, so there's a very common way of funding editions of, of photo books, which is to produce a special edition which is limited in number. I did that for this, you know, there were 40 copies of books that contained some other bells and whistles that the trade edition doesn't have. It helps to underwrite the cost of producing the book, but the, the point of the exclusive things was to help to make the more available thing available. Um, it's hard for me to think of, it's, well, I would want to think of a book that were, was itself an artistic object um, as something that didn't conform to a kind of commodity logic of exclusivity and scarcity in order to be invested in producing one. I would want for it not to be something that only 15 or 20 or 40 people could own in order to really be in invested in producing it. Um, and so there's a, there's a tension there for me. Um, and I mean, obviously the easiest way to resolve that is that you just get a huge pot of money from somewhere and then it doesn't really matter. Um, you can do what you want. Um, but that's, that's as close as I can kind of come to describing my relationship to that kind of idea. Did I, did I get at what you were talking about? We'll talk afterwards. All right. Further questions? Hi, thank you so much. Um, I think um, as spaces that make artists' books, if possible, more available, big question. I think libraries right now is a big question for all of us uh, in a digital world. Um, but libraries, you know, I really like art book libraries. I know that's a, probably a rare thing, but maybe it's around schools, spaces, universities. But I think the art book library is something I'm really interested in. And I would like to see more of and maybe create some that are art books, a kind of curated space for art books. Um, I like that. Yeah, I wish, I mean, I, I desperately wish there were more. Um, I think I started asking my parents for money to buy books when I was about eight or nine. And I, I began collecting them as soon as I could get them to do that and then you know, could find money from school or other ways to, to, do, to buy them myself. And I've, at every school I went to all the way through university, I was always friends with my librarian. It just, they end, it, it turns out that reliably, anywhere you go in the world, the librarians are cool. It's just, it's just a universe, it turns out it's maybe the one, the one and only universal, maybe, well, in my experience, so it must be true for everybody, right? Um, but, but yeah, so I've been, I've, it's a, it, libraries are a, a place in which I spend a great deal of time, um, I, I mean, for maybe sort of predictable reasons where you're, you know, you're an outsider and you feel like you don't necessarily have a place to go and a library is a place that's open to everybody um, and it's full of 
objects that suggest that there's no limit to the ways in which you can imagine relationships to the world. And I think that's extraordinarily important. Um, I worry that the kinds of books that we make as photographers aren't produced at a price point and at a scale that's sufficiently um, low in terms of price and large in terms of edition that they can be accessible by libraries. Um, something that I do continuously, most photographers who buy books will do the same thing, is I buy books secondhand. Um, and the number of secondhand books in my book collection, which at this point is probably like 1,500 to 2,000 photo books that come from libraries that have been deaccessioned from library collections, is alarmingly high. I remember when I was in my second year of grad school, the Corcoran uh, School of Arts shut down, and I ended up, without any plan, buying through like Amazon's secondhand section, buying three photo books that were all from that library within that same year and just thinking like, well, of course this is happening, like, or of course it's been happening. Um, so I wish that they were more robust. I, I mean, being a, a European, being British, I'm deeply invested in the idea of public funding for such institutions. I understand that that's heresy in many parts of this country, um, and I wish that it weren't. Um, I'd love to do events in libraries. I love some of the ways in which people do temporary programming and sort of reconstitute the collections um, or, or do sorts of workshops in them. Um, I think they're a, a really vital and incredibly important place for people in which people can transform their lives at basically no cost, at the cost of arriving, right? Um, and, and I do, I suppose one of the, one of the reasons why I, I'm so invested in the book as, as a form is because I imagine some other person at some other point going into a library and finding a book to which I've contributed something um, and I imagine that person typically being somebody who's from who's who, who's structurally oppressed in some fashion and is looking for some evidence that um, there's there's potency and resource available in the experience of that structural marginal oppression and and that was me when I was a kid um, and the essay that I wrote at the end of my book is begins basically in addressing that person whomever they might be in the future and I hope it ends up in libraries. We've done things, myself and the publisher, to make it such that it can be in certain libraries, and I'll do more where I can, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting thinking about, you know, putting together what the both of you said about libraries in the, and the, the library, the art library, the library after the digital, the ubiquity of, of digital um, technologies, you know, because, um, there, the, a library, of course, is not just a place where you can get access to lots of information or lots of compiled, archived content, but there's a system and structure and legibility to the way that those things are organized um, and categorized that sort of becomes lost in uh, the space of where things kind of exist digitally now. You know, if you, could, if you were to sort of like create epochs for how information is circulated and disseminated on the web, you would say that like originally there's some idea that it maps on uh, the kind of categor categorical tree that you exist, see in a library, right? Where like things are under other things and adjacent to, to related concepts. And then there becomes this sort of emergence of search, right? With like Google in which like that sense of adjacency and the proximity between concepts and ideas goes away. And now we're in this period that is even subsequent to that, which there's the rise of the, the kind of algorithmic feed in which like, you know, I purchased this on Amazon and it thinks that I also like this. Um, that doesn't so much create 
links and adjacencies, but it sort of like doubles back your preconceived um, uh, sort of like um, elected interests. So I think that it's the abs the need for libraries is a need for like a public space, but also a way of thinking about um, information and knowledge and objects of culture as being belonging to a sort of family or a tree uh, that are that that you know, can lead from one to another. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's really, I mean, that's vitally important. And I, I, I find, um, you know, one thing that we, we talk a lot about as faculty is how to foster um, 1990s at this point, you know, into the 2000s who have had devices in their hands, you know, for most of their adult, or not just their adult, most of their lives. And what you say about adjacency, I think, is really important that the con contextual um, nature of a library. Um, you know, when, when I'm looking for academic uh, articles, I try to make it a rule to look at the table of contents for the issue from which I'm pulling that one article. So, what else was in that issue in which they published Venus in Two Acts? Like, what else was that, pu that publication interested in in that moment? And that's obviously what a physical experience of the journal would give me. Um, but when I'm accessing these things digitally, I no longer need to ask that question. And in fact, it's sometimes harder to get back to the index once you, you, know, you found your way to the specific object you want. Um, and I, I think, yeah, context is such a delicate, um, ephemeral, but at the same time vital in determining thing. Um, the capacity to exert context, to articulate context is so vital to understanding how utterances have, have meaning within a broader discourse. And I do worry about the kind of discombobulation and fragmentation um, that occurs in this sort of ready accessible model of, of information uh, precisely because I think it makes you subject and produce you know what Eli Paris calls the personalization bubble right. where you just only ever see more things that agree with what you already agreed with because it's giving you more of what it thinks you like the daily me some people say yeah that. exactly yeah yeah um, I think uh, we, uh, we've been given the hook. We've been given the hook, but thank you. Uh, please join me in thanking uh, Stanley and Derek. And uh, their books are available in the Aperture Popper Bookshop upstairs if you are interested, but you can also have a chat with them. Uh, this is our last event for forum for today, so we start again tomorrow at 11. Um, thank you for coming.